Hey everyone, welcome back to the Limitless Arts Podcast. In this episode, I sit down with my friend Nathan Lackenmeyer to talk about his work as a creative technologist. He started his career at MIT in my hometown of Boston, which is actually how I met Nathan in the first place. He's a super talented creator, and he's worked on some iconic installations at the Dana-Farber Institute and the Tate Modern. His work with kinetic sculptures early on informed some of his more recent work, incorporating machine learning with robotic, free-floating artificial life forms at the Tate. It's pretty wild stuff. It's super cool to talk with Nathan about how his career has progressed since finishing school. Our conversation was so natural and easy. We both know many of the same people. It's an interesting dive into some unique parts of the new media art scene, and I think you're going to love listening to us jam. You know, year or two. Yeah, well, I mean, you have to because... You're just spending that's... so much time on a, you know, speaker and on a screen that everyone's like, okay, well, I want, me so- I want to sound good and I don't want to sound like I'm on my MacBook Pro. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, everybody just sits all day staring at a screen, talking to a screen. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about that the other day, like how much time I've spent like talking into this monitor. And it is literally like the past two years. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, gosh, like, I feel like I could count the number of meetings or like work meetings, particularly like that I've had in person like on one hand in the past two years like it's just absolutely insane you mean in-person work meetings yeah hold on like 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 in-person work (laughs) meetings like on one hand i try super hard to see my friends and people in person because like my it just i can't i just have so much zoom fatigue i'm just like looking at someone on a screen i'm just like um this just feels like what i've done for eight hours today already yeah no you know like it really helps to switch gears though i i try and um like when i'm done with work i'll try and go and do some some kind of like physical activity like i'm really into climbing so i'll climb or i'll like work out and um and that uh that like cardiovascular activity will like shake my brain out of the the cobwebs of just sitting and then you know like if i want to socialize you know, I actually don't mind talking, like talking to friends this way. I found that over the pandemic, I actually caught up with a lot of friends that I hadn't seen in many, many years, just because, um, yeah, I mean, I was like in the mode of like, oh, hey, let's, let's just do a Zoom, you know, or let, let's yeah. just let's catch up. And it was, it's so easy because it's like, it's just Zoom time now and, and whatever. Mm-hmm. It's also like, I would much rather sit face-to-face with people yeah and, and actual conversation but um yeah, yeah. i don't, I don't I just this. been calling people old school phone calls which feels kind of quaint in the year 2022 yeah yeah it, it, it is it is a little strange it's it was it was weird when like my mom was like hey let's zoom and i'm like oh is that where we are? Is that where society is now? Like, mm-hmm. like all right, mom, I let you onto my Facebook and my Instagram, and now we're we gonna start zooming together. Yeah. Is this what's happening? It's like, okay. Oh, yeah. There was a while with my family where they were like, "Okay, like Sunday at five p.m., we're gonna have a family Zoom," and I was just like, "This is terrible. This is like yeah. really the worst now. Now that it's scheduled on my calendar every week." Yeah. Well, it reminds me of, um, it almost reminds me of landlines. You remember like when we were kids and everybody had a landline mm-hmm. and like your sister was like, get off the phone. I'm trying to talk to my boyfriend or whatever it was. Right. And like, yeah. there was this one thing and like, you know, it was the landline. I don't know if, if you've had this experience where like 
you're on a zoom and then somebody else, like for me, I've got employees and like my employee will try and use the zoom mm -hmm. and it'll like boot me off or like he can't use it or she can't use it because I'm on it. And I'm like, wow, this is total landline status. Yeah. And like really early on, that. we had some of that going on where we'd have back-to-back -back meetings and like, we hadn't quite figured out how to like do it. Cause we were just using our personal rooms. Right. Yeah. And you're like, Oh shit. Like, you know, the next meeting's coming into the room now. Right, right, right. Exactly. But you were, wait, wait, virtual rooms or physical rooms? Virtual rooms on Zoom. Okay. That it's like, so, a, like they, like when you have your personal room, like your, your meeting ID that's constant from meeting to meeting to meeting. Oh, yeah. You know, I don't. So then you, like, you know, you could be having a meeting with one client and if it goes five minutes over, the next client hops into the same meeting and you're like, oh, uh, shit. Yeah. I don't, I always make a new a new id like i always do because yeah. like, I, I, all my zooms are are like scheduled through google calendar yeah whenever you you like create a new meeting it like makes a new room so I'm, I, I haven't had that but i've definitely ended up in other people's oh. zooms oh so just uh just a note I, um this is kind of weird because like i just started the recording but we were like bantering and it felt natural so i just decided to start we don't do I can video see it on the bottom so yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we, we don't do vi like the video doesn't come through in the podcast. It's yeah. just our voice. Like I, I, I like to be talking to people face to face. So I always try and keep the video. Um, it helps. Yeah. Well, it does. It makes it, it makes it feel like we're in the same place. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm glad that you decided to, we finally figured out a time to, to do this. It's, um, yeah, I actually, I've been on, you know, I was on a, I was on a roll and then I like stopped. And for the past like two months, I haven't done anything. And then two days ago I did one with, um, with Christopher Bowder. Do you know him? From, no, I don't. From yeah. He has a company called white void, um, in Berlin and they do some really, really crazy kinetic art, man. You should check it out. He's, uh, gonna, he's I really, will. that sounds cool. Yeah, it's white void, and and he's really OG too. You know, they, they, he, you know, he's he's probably, you know, I I don't even know, like five or ten years older than I am, but um, he, uh, you know, we were just we were we were talking about our experiences growing up, and he was telling me about the rave scene in in Berlin and how that kind of you know um, the 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 um, the angst of being part of an underground scene that was, was counterculture and kind of being stomped on gave him motivation as a visual artist to express himself in the way that he was. And I just, I could relate to that so much because back in Boston, you know, it was like the rave scene there and the asylum and VJing and like that whole thing. And mm -hmm. it was like, well, I think that's why you know, visual arts were so appealing to me because they were slightly taboo because they were associated with a slightly taboo scene. And yeah, it was it's just really interesting. interesting. Yeah, it was it was cool to hear how how his his progression happened as an artist. And I'm like, wow, like all the way over in Berlin, and it was the same kind of uh, the same kind of motivation almost, or the same like you know drive. Mm -hmm. I think you know that's really interesting, and it seems like that might be a slight generational thing because I think I'm probably like seven, eight years younger than you. And by the time that the, that I felt like I was a part of the, the same scene in Boston, right. It didn't, 
I don't know. It didn't have it. I felt I feel like it, things had started to break into the mainstream in a way that it didn't feel taboo anymore. Yeah. Um, and it felt like, you know, it still felt kind of. It felt like a legitimate art form, right? It felt like it kind of gone from like weird stuff that people were doing, like in a warehouse or something into something that was like just becoming mainstream and just becoming like accepted enough as like a real form of art. So yeah. it's kind of interesting that there was a transition going on there. Well, you were also part of the MIT scene. And were you were you in the media lab, the MIT media labs? No, just regular old boring MIT. Oh, it's standard MIT. Yeah, you know, standard <laughs> MIT, not media lab. <laughs> right. Well, I, yeah, I, I think that the there there's a... MIT is a really special environment and I didn't go to MIT, but I, I was very much a part of that scene during my time in Boston. And, um, there was, a you know, MIT fosters this acceptance of technology and to a certain degree, an acceptance and an encouragement of creative thinking with technology that, um, and it's also a pipeline into industry. So I think in that way, um, there's almost this path that's laid out for creative technologists who go to MIT where it's like, okay, yeah, you're thinking outside the box and you're doing weird things, but there's this, there's this outlet to industry that exists that you can tap into if you so choose. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if you, um, you know, uh, like the legend of frostbite and, uh, mm -hmm. his, you know, the, the blue led. Yeah, man. And how he came up in, in that environment, you know, being a total like deviant raver who also happened to work for color kinetics and mm -hmm. invent the blue diode, which allowed RGB LEDs to be a thing, which allowed video, which really like opened up an entire industry. Yeah, it was just, yeah. I mean, the stuff that was going on, especially with color kinetics and, you know, frostbite and that scene in particular at that time was. To me, it's just it's, it's mind-boggling to think about just how many different things were intersecting all at the same time, right? That there was kind of this rave scene, this underground art scene, this industrial like technology being developed, and all of these things were kind of interwoven at one place in time. Yeah, yeah, that that's a legend. That's like a really um, I'm proud to have been part of that piece of history at that point in time. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like that that um that was a really like monumental part of new media art history i feel you know like just yeah i mean i i certainly feel the same way that especially for a lot of modern you know multimedia art a lot of modern led art in particular kind of owes its lineage to that period of time it totally does man. and that where that 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 particular group of friends and that you know that social scene um and i i wasn't even like super deep into it but i was you know i went to the warehouse i saw the art that he had created and you know it was uh it was really cool it's just a very yeah, interesting time and that's definitely a you know i think you're right in calling it out that that's a very particular mit kind of thing like i think you know people would call it interdisciplinary or whatever but it's really that there's a lot of comfort with experimentation and a lot of comfort with taking things that feel like maybe they're two totally different areas and saying like hey what happens if i you know try to combine these 
Yeah. Like, what happens if I take, you know, LEDs and I start combining it with neuroscience to make, you know, persistence of vision art? Or like, what happens if I take, you know, all this stuff that we're doing about blue diodes and, you know, solid state physics and now taking this over into the lighting and theatrical and, you know, artistic industries? Yeah, I think MIT really, uh, people like creative people gravitate towards MIT, creative technologists, people who are very, very smart and very like odd. I don't know how to how else to explain it. Like I know mm -hmm. so many fascinating, just really interesting people who have gone to MIT and um, you know, it feels like home when, when you, when you talk to them and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, like I know those places. I know that, that, you know, that scene, I know those people. Definitely. Um, MIT is a really, really cool environment. Do you ever, uh, do you ever go back? You ever like go back and do you ever do like senior house stuff or? Oh, I, I, well, before the pandemic, I had always lived in the East coast ever since I went to MIT. I was always living in either Boston or New York. So yeah. I went back at least for Steros every year, if not more often than that, just a couple of different times. There was still faculty and staff that I kept in touch with. Um, but, you know, since the pandemic now, I haven't really gone. I mean, it's, the Institute's not even really open anymore. What, the Institute? What do you mean? Or MIT. Like, like MIT's just not even really, like, the campus isn't, like, oh, they're, right. they're closed to only students, and you have to have a student ID to even go through the halls, which feels crazy. It feels crazy to me now, because MIT has such a long history of being an open campus and not having security, not having swipe ID cards to go in, having public Wi-Fi and kind of having this presence as a as a public institution in Cambridge where yeah. somewhere like Harvard, it's like it's a lot more normal that you go there and the gate's locked or the doors are closed and you need to kind of be, you know, a member of the campus to be welcome into the buildings. No, I remember going to parties there all the time, like all the time. Yeah. You know, in my uh, in my in my late teens, you know, that was uh, all of the the alphabet soup of psychedelics was uh, <laughs> coming coming out of those hallways. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I guess COVID changed everything, and and I was actually going to say it is it's MIT has always been incredibly different than other campuses because of how open it felt, and and there was a reason to go there because there were cool people doing cool things there. You know, there were interesting people having interesting parties um, in in the halls of MIT, whereas Harvard, it's like, I didn't really know anybody cool who was going to Harvard. I'm sure there's lots of cool people who go to Harvard, but like, I didn't know them. And uh, it, it always felt much more like closed off and uh, yeah, just not really like a yeah. place where you want I mean, I think even, even into the social space, I think there's that same mentality of people being interested in trying new things, meeting new people. And it's like, hey, you're cool. Like, what do you think about this? Like, come on, hang out. And let's see, like, you know, what we have in common and what we're interested in. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So what what years did you go to MIT? Uh, 2006 to 2012. Okay, I yeah. For, I was there for six years. I was there for 2006 and 2010 getting my undergrad degrees. And then I got stayed, I stuck around for two more years till 2012 and got my master's. Nice. And what did you get your degrees in? Uh, my undergraduate degree is in, I'm going to sound totally ridiculous. I have three undergraduate degrees. No, yeah, this is kind of amazing. No, two undergraduate degrees. I have physics and electrical engineering and computer science are one program in 
team because yeah. they actually have an integrated approach where they feel like you have to know both. And that feels really, it feels kind of duh now that it's like, yeah, you can't do any soft, any hardware without knowing software and pretty much all software you need to know something about the hardware. But they've been doing it since the 80s and it was a pretty innovative approach at the time. Um, and then I stuck around, I got my master's in electrical engineering afterwards. Nice. Nice. That's a, that's a fucking powerful combo, man. It really is. It really is. And then what'd you get? You, you, so that was your master's was electrical engineering yeah. or nice. Nice. Yeah. And then, actually was focusing in, um, control systems and instrumentation. So my academic background, I was building equipment for laboratories to make measurements on really tiny and sensitive natural systems. So like atoms or neurons or things like that, figuring out how you can measure the current in the neuron or the, you know, light being output by an atom and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And so when you graduated, did you stick around Boston or did you get the hell out of there? Uh, I was in Boston for 12 years after I graduated. So Okay. Wow. Yeah. That's because I always associated you with Boston. We actually met at the glitch loft yeah, um, during some party there, not like well after I had moved to the West coast, I went mm -hmm. back to visit and I think it was glitch giving. Was it? Yeah. It was something so. like that. Cause you weren't living there though. Were you? No. no, no, but you were, you were going there. And did you like jump right into new media arts when you left school or did you like, yeah, it was a weird that. like overlap that was happening that I think just because of frostbite and kind of that generation of older students and people in the MIT community that kind of had this connection to Burning Man and making these new media art projects, they were connected with all the other people in the Boston area that were also interested in this. Mm. And just uh, I think around my senior year and in grad school, I'd started to kind of meet people outside of the MIT circle for the first time that were also interested in these things and started going to parties, going to warehouses, going to Cyphoria, like going to Firefly, like going to all the things that were happening, like seeing all of the, the other, you know, artists and technology and technologists and people that were doing really cool things. Yeah. And I think that my, you know, it was definitely kind of a, like, of a like moonlighting and daylighting kind of situation where I was like a, you know, research scientist at MIT by day. And by night I was on the weekends, I was going to raves and DJing and doing all this other stuff. And I think it was just kind of a slow shift where I was realizing like that I could use all of my skills and technology and all these things that I was learning in a research lab gave me the thinking and the tools to actually express myself as an artist as well, which yeah. is something that, I'd never really thought of myself as before. Like I'd always thought of myself as a, as an engineer, as a scientist, as kind of like very rationally minded and not, you know, qualitative or creatively minded before that time. Yeah. And yeah. I think by the time I graduated, I was starting to have a little bit of that, that, um, you know, crisis of like, well, what do I want to do now? Now I, I can't, I'm kind of at the crossroads where I can't do both at the same time. I need to either, figure out what I want to do as a profession and figure out what skills I want to continue refining. And um, yeah, I just decided and kind of jumped into the creative tech world and figured, you know, let's try this out and see how this goes. And I can always kind of go back to research as a fallback if this isn't an actual career path that'll work. But 
Yeah, that's always the gamble, right? It's like, ah, I'm going to try this. We'll see how it, how it works. Yeah, it's like, you know, this sounds fun and this same seems like a really great creative outlet. I don't know if this will, like, pay the bills and pay my rent, but let's let's see what happens. So when when did that, that happen in Boston? Did you, like, start working for a firm or? Yeah, so my first my first creative technology job was actually with Nervous System. Um, which wow. is a generative jewelry company that started by two MIT alumni um, who actually lived at Senior House, Jessica Rosenkrantz and Jesse Lewis Rosenberg. Um, I know Jessica Rosenkrantz. Okay, great. Yeah. So, so they, she was doing her, um, doing her architecture degree at MIT, and was laser cutting and using all these rapid prototyping techniques, and kind of as was the the academic fad at the time was interested in biologically inspired systems mm-hmm. and eventually just took her work in the direction of instead of using biology for architecture using biology for product design and for jewelry and objects like that so they have a I mean, whole they're almost one and the same it's just like jewelry mm-hmm. and product design is just architecture on a smaller scale like good architecture or excuse me good product design should use the same the same concepts and 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 appreciation of natural form as architecture absolutely i mean i you know i have a very holistic view of design which i feel like most people who hear about design don't even really think about what design actually is they think of it as primarily a visual or aesthetic thing yeah um and i think of design almost as a you know i think of it almost as a subset of psychology or anthropology right where it's really a thinking of of you have the way that the human mind works and you have all of your senses that you experience with the world around you how can you how can you intentionally use the senses to accommodate what you want to communicate with someone whether it's how you want them to use an object how you want them to use a space how you want them to flow through a space like so much of what happens with design happens on a subconscious level where you're not even really thinking about it just kind of like it happens where you you grab the right you grab the right part of an object or you move the right way in a building you're you're describing ux design and like yeah one of my one of my one of my good friends is going she's getting a master's in anthropology now and she's thinking about going into ux design afterwards and another friend of mine is graduated with a degree in psychology and did Mm -hmm. the same thing and then yeah it's just there's so many um there's so much of the human psyche in in the way we interact with things and design things it's almost like you could you could do a degree in in you could have like a science-based degree in like physics and material design and then complement that with psychology or anthropology and have like a killer killer foundation for for going into ux design absolutely yeah and that's that's part of what's personally the appeal of design to me is that it's it's combining these very technical you know logical rational like objective like science and engineering skills but if you don't want them to just be abstract mathematics or abstract research and you want to actually be able to do something that affects people you have to apply them to people yeah, exactly. If you want to make a product that people use, you have to understand how people think. You can't just say, this is the, you know, objectively the perfect product because it meets all of these, you know, quantitative criteria. If you don't actually think about how does it make people feel? 
how will people right. feel using it? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. And that like that goes into everything that we do. Uh, I think that's a, that's a great foundation for the, the beginning of a design studio. You know, um, yeah. If I, was, if I was starting a design studio and, and UX design, I would I would find uh, I'd find students with that background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, when did you move from jewelry making into into more uh, like the only work that I know that you've done? Well, I know I know three pieces actually. I know um, I know kinetic rain that you were part of, but I keep meeting people. I keep meeting other people who are part of that project. I was talking to Christopher Bowder the other day and he was like, Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I know like one of the designers of that project. <laughs> like, so I wasn't funny. a part of kinetic rain, but I was a part of a series similar project in Boston. Um, oh. um, Oh gosh. What was it called? Misrepresenting you this whole time, man. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there was a kinetic sculpture at the Biogen IDEC lobby um, okay. in uh, Cambridge, Breaking Wave. Breaking Wave is what it was called. And I okay. did that when I was at small design firm. That was actually in collaboration with Jeff Lieberman. And he did the kind of conceptual design for it and built it in, um, built it in collaboration with Hypersonic Design in Brooklyn, who's another kinetic sculpture company. Yeah, you hooked me up with them. You you connected me yeah, with them. Yeah, Gwillem, the Gwillem, who was one of their lead engineers. Yeah, and I like kind of went down that that path for a minute. They they dissolved. They like kind of yeah, you know, exploded or some, something happened. They they don't exist anymore. But really fascinating, fascinating guy for sure. Um, so you worked with them, and then you did that installation that was uh was there in in Boston. Yeah, exactly. So after I moved from jewelry making. I worked with um, David Small, who's an ex-Media Lab professor, at his company, Small Design Firm, which was a small design firm, but was also a design firm owned by David Small. Sure. That's great. <laughs> great name. You know, when you got a last name like Small, you really just, you got to own it. You do. You got to play it up. <laughs> so he, um, he ran a interactive media design company that focused on dynamic typography and interactive environments. So a lot of the work that we did was based for museums on kind of thinking of interactive environments and multimedia ways to communicate text information, though right. occasionally we would also do kind of more artistic and poetic projects. And, you know, we would do interactive environments for Cirque du Soleil. We did some stuff for the Nobel Peace Prize. We did a couple of other different kind of projects that were less about um, communicating information and were more about just kind of the feeling of design and the feeling of a space. So that, yeah, so yeah. I did that for probably five years afterwards. What did you do with Cirque? Uh, so we worked on this really interesting project um, right up my alley, given my background and kind of the music scene in Boston, where um, Cirque is working on this project called Sama Sama with an Israeli group. And it, the idea is that instead of a show, where you kind of go and you sit down and you're the audience for the show, you sit down and you watch it. It was almost a, a cross between a theme park and a party where you'd show up and at the very huh. beginning of the evening, there would be kind of this opening show that would kind of set up the narrative of this performance of this evening you're going to have. And then at the beginning of, at the end of this uh, introductory show, the lights go on and you realize that you're in this giant indoor theme park. 
and wow. just go like run around and play. And oh my god, that's such a great idea! It's almost and, like sleep, sleep no more across. Yeah, with, uh, yeah, it's like sleep no more in like a stadium. Wow. And the idea was that all of the different activities were all tied together by this idea of making music collaboratively with each other. So Interesting. Would, so there was one kind of attraction, for lack of a better word, that was all about drums and rhythm. And you can go and there might be attendants, there might be actors, maybe there was interactive media that would kind of show you how to play the drums and make the music that they wanted you to make. And you would actually be playing through through kind of participating in this attraction. You'd be making the rhythm line that would be playing in the music for the night. That's and like then, a collaborative Blue Man group. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's like what if Blue Man group was for 500 people and like 20 people had to collaborate and do the drums, 20 people had to do the horns, 20 people had to go do the strings. And it kind of just was cycling throughout the night. And you just, you know, you had two or three hours to kind of run around and you know do all the attractions and then there was kind of a closing show at the end you know when i first moved to the west coast i collaborated with this artist up in ashland uh yeah up in ashland uh ashland california or ashland oregon it's like right on the border anyway uh collaborated on this installation with this guy corndog he he's like a metal sculptor and it was a giant instrument kind of it reminds me of that it's like along those lines where you just have a massive group of people come up and they'd be playing this instrument. And there was, uh, you know, the guts of a piano um, or a couple of guts of pianos. And then there were like all of these sawed off uh, uh, oxygen tanks. And then there was like a xylophone and some kind of stringed instrument. And it was all welded to these giant steel rings. It was mm -hmm. very like come play with sound and like make, makes make music together. Exactly. And I, you know, it was just so interesting to see kind of this idea come to life of instead of having an instrument, like what if the building was an instrument, right? Yeah. What if the what if the space was an instrument? What if the instrument wasn't a thing that you picked up and held? Right. Right. Absolutely. It's a fascinating idea. I think that uh, there could be some kind of electronic equivalent, especially like in COVID days. You know what I mean? Where it's just everybody is collaboratively making music uh, digitally. Mm -hmm. it could be really cool so you worked on on that installation yeah like an instrument of some kind or yeah i worked on two of the attractions that were a part of this kind of theme park so one of them was um based off of the idea of conducting so everyone got a conductor's wand in the group and uh -huh. would kind of conduct the virtual symphony to create the music yeah and then the other one i made was um a projection mapped floor that was the, like it was called the heart. And the idea is that it was kind of the town square of the, of the theme park. And it was the mm -hmm. center where people could come to. And it was an unstructured activity. So all the other activities had kind of music or sheet music that you were supposed to try to play along with. This one was really just meant to be the kind of break area where you could go, you could kind of have free form fun and, as you walked around, you were tracked where you were on the floor and projections would, would um, you know, color the floor based off of where you've been and what you were doing. And then connections would be made with you and other people that would make music. Interesting. So when was this? Like what year? About? 2014 or 15, I want to say. What were you using to do that kind of um, 
to, to create that kind of system? Like what, what, what software frameworks were you putting together to, to create that? Because now it would be, uh, you know, touch designer would be an obvious choice. Yeah. So gosh, the tools have developed so much and so, just so quickly. It's really crazy. Oh, no. So at the time, we actually used a framework called SDF Windows, which was a proprietary framework for our company, first of yeah. all, time firm. And the reason huh. is, is that even the tools that are newer, like processing, like processing is kind of the, the grandfather of all the tools, right? Cinder, open frameworks, or at least any of the creative, any of the programming tools. It's been around for a while, but has it been yeah. around within Touch Designer? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I feel like Touch Designer kind of draws its lineage more from like the the Max MSP or pure data like uh, lineage of tools with the patching, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I don't know the answer to that. I'm I'm genuinely curious. I'd love to talk <laughs> to somebody who's like, where did this? You know, what is the history of uh, of Touch Designer? How does that relate to to processing? Yeah. Um, but to go back to it, we were using our own kind of C++ frameworks just because when David had started the company, there weren't any creative coding tools available. Kind of that's you know he's part of the kind of the OG era of Media Lab of Media Lab researchers and professors and faculty up there with like John Maida, Ben Fry, Casey Reese, like the people who were really kind of popularizing this stuff. So. Yeah. On one hand, the tool is very closed because it was very homebrewed, so it wasn't like open frameworks or processing where everyone was, you know, knew the tools. But -hmm. on the other hand, it kind of had like a five-year head start on a lot of those tools in terms of its sophistication. Right. Yeah. That's that's interesting. And is it around still? No, I don't. I. It's kind of a close. It's a closed source tool because there's no there's no documentation. There's Right. You know, nothing like the documentation is go ask Dave or go ask Mike how it works. Well, I guess the real question is, where's Dave? Where's where's the small, small design? Oh, he, is, he is retired on Martha's Vineyard and loving it. <laughs> oh, nice. Well, there you go. There you go. I love to hear about um, new media artists who retire and have a happy ending. I'm like, maybe that'll be me. Hopefully, knock yeah. on wood. <laughs> maybe I'll retire somewhere nice someday and, and live live somewhere like Martha's Vineyard and, and love it. Hey, that's a dream. It's good to know that people have done it before us. So it's a, it's definitely possible. Yeah. I think I would go insane right now. I'm definitely like, I cannot sit still like retirement honestly sounds like a, like a quasi nightmare. I'm like, what would I do? I actually, I know exactly what I would do. I would probably find some other project to like, or like rabbit hole to dive into. And yeah. Yeah. And it's weird that in some ways, especially the past two years, I feel like I've discovered that running my own business isn't that different from being retired. Well, like, I mean, you have a lot of freedom. If I was retired, what would I do? It's like, I'd want interesting stuff to do with other people that, you know, was was intellectually stimulating, that used my skills, that made me feel like I was useful. And it's like, that's what, that's what I do. That's how I run my business. So you went from working for small design firm to like where did morphogen so it's like morphogen and citra those two those are two names Satara, of yeah what is it satara satara oh yeah. interesting looks like citra anyway satara um yeah so morphogen was just kind of the morphogen was just kind of my vj alias for you know the okay. year that i was doing that yeah and yeah based off of the 
the things that I was interested in at the time. So morphogens are biological agents that cause change in um, in patterns, in texture, in growth. And I was mm. really interested in kind of applying the skills that I'd learned in um, you know simulation and control theory and that kind of field into making simulations that could create art. So kind of my earlier work and explorations was really in making math and simulations that created, you know, visually and aesthetically interesting images for VJ. Yeah. Interesting. That's cool. So that's I like where, that. That's yeah. where the morphogen names comes from. And then Satara Systems, um, Satara is star in Hindi. Mm-hmm. Um, so star systems, almost literally. That's the, uh, the company that me and my business partner, also my wife, are doing our uh, current work under. So nice. that's more of doing kind of technology, user research, and design for um, immersive environments and interactive media. Yeah, yeah. I was looking through the website. It's very cool, man. Like the the installation you did with Cadillac is really impressive. And uh, that that was under Satara. That was part of that was the that was the last project I did. So between small design firm and Satara, there was one more stop, and that's what brought me to New York. And I worked with a company called uh, Midnight Commercial, and that was a it was a kind of an innovation consultancy that had been started up by um, MIT Media Lab alumni, and it was much more in the spirit of a marketing agency and kind of marketing type work. And it was actually a really good experience because I feel like my my previous work was working with museums, where a fast project is twelve months. And, you know, sometimes it's two or three years to get a project from concept to completion. Yeah. And the marketing world is just like the total opposite. It's like if they give you three months, that's a long lead time. For the well, those are, those, are the two, those are the two paradigms. You've got architectural placemaking, you've got permanent, and then you've got marketing, which is very, very, you know, tran- transient and temporary. And Absolutely. Uh, for the first, well, for almost all of, the existence of digital ambience, we have stayed far, far away from um, marketing and and agency work. That's changing now, but um, you know you've got companies, a, a company in New York, Fake Love, um, a friend of mine, Sophia, she used to work for them, and they, you know, they were doing all kinds of really unique experiential mm-hmm. installations. I think they're done now. Yeah, they were bought by the New York Times, and they just closed down. I think a year or change ago. Yeah. Yeah. Sophia spun off before that, though. I, I remember mm-hmm. when she was on this podcast like a year plus ago and she was like, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> like, okay. Um, anyway, yeah. New York has a number of really interesting uh, like experiential design firms that are playing with technology, doing um, unique things with, with new media and uh, are focused sp- squarely at um legacy brands and and the the agency the agency world absolutely i like i like the pacing of 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 architecture i really do like like permanent installations also you know the 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 work that we do it's like our narrative is very emotional it's it's not very contextual and that lends itself to like creating vibe in a lobby or on a facade Mm -hmm. you know what i mean it's like it's like abstract emotional messaging through mm-hmm. lighting essentially um 
Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, that's where the the tension is with a lot of the agency driven work is like, you can't, you can't create emotion on demand. Right. No, you can't, and, you can't be like, I'm going to pick a time. I'm going to pick a place. You're going to show up and make this emotion happen. And you got like eight weeks to make it to figure out how. Well, agencies also want contextual messaging. Don't you think like an agency is like, in the end, they're like, buy our thingy or you know what I mean like pay attention to this brand and and there's there's oftentimes a a real um a real push for a more contextual message and that's mm-hmm. fine but the medium that we work in is much more non-contextual so yeah. i've i've found that for for us you know yeah it's just it, we we tend to get gigs that are more abstract and an architectural placemaking is all about complementing the form of the architecture you're installing into. Absolutely. Um, and I think for that reason, I've drifted a lot more. I've drifted away from a lot of the agency-driven work, though I still have a soft spot for um, retail stores, like temporary or permanent installations in stores, because I think stores are just again, kind of coming just from the psychological and anthropological and, you know, emotional perspective, like, I find stores fascinating. And they have that environmental presence, where you can sometimes do something really interesting with them. Yeah, well, I mean, the the, the pop up, you know, the, the concept of the pop up, and, and now you've got like, unused retail environments, which are everywhere. And, and you've got, you know, large uh, mall owners that are desperate to to mm-hmm. fill these empty spaces like who the fuck goes to the mall like i don't even know how do they how are there any stores in malls right now i don't know yeah i mean i think that's a that's a huge shift <laughs> that i think is going to be really interesting to see how how experienced designers approach that because i think you're right that in a lot of ways the old model of shopping is kind of dead now like everyone, yeah. like all the companies that didn't let you buy things online now are either gone or they figured out how to let you buy things online for pickup yeah, or, the, or for shipping or whatever. But if well, for better or worse, people have discovered it's like getting out of your chair just to get a product is kind of a waste of time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the interesting part of this is if you're going for, for utilitarian products, right? Like if I need a light bulb, and I need to go to Home Depot or, oh, yeah. or whatever, right? Like you're just going to order online. You're going to get it shipped to you if you can, or maybe you'll pick it up on your way home so you can get it faster, right? Or you'll yeah. like drive up and just like do the the like drive-by pickup, right? Because you're like, I need this today. Right. But there's still some areas of stores where you go there, not because you want the product, but because you want the experience, right? Right. And, and that, like, that well, is- this is like the Apple Store model, right? It is. It's also, you know, what most big legacy brands are trying to do. Like you've got Nike outlets, then they're trying to make their 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 product cool. And it, it's an experience when you go and buy it. I mean, Amazon has stores now. Have you, have you seen these things? It's like an Amazon store and they've got like knickknacks, like a spattering of Amazon products. And you just go in and it's like, you know, there's some nice people behind the counter. They're young and they're mm-hmm. hip and like blah, blah, blah. And then you've got like you know, a Peloton bike and a fucking radio, you know, like, like a Bose stereo and, you know, just all these random things, but it looks like an Apple store and it is very much like the shopping experience. 
So yeah, so I think that's going to happen a lot more now that you know, first of all, there's just so much commercial retail that's empty. There's just so many storefronts that you know, if someone wants to do something interesting and take a risk, I feel like there's a lot more space available for it than there's ever been before. Well, so a good friend of mine, Shlomo, he um, I know created, Shlomo, actually. Yeah, he's a fucking cool guy, man. Yeah, he's yeah. also he also has been on this podcast. <laughs> he, he he did an experience. Uh, he created a meow wolf esque. I don't I don't want to insult it by calling it meow wolf esque, but it's from you know from a layman's point of view, it's basically mm-hmm. the meow wolf business model, and he created this this walkthrough environment it's like beautiful it's almost like avatar like these beautiful glowing um physical trippy alien plants that you go and you touch and they react and it's like he created his own hardware and software and like the whole thing um he created a tech demo and he deployed it at uh gray area arts foundation in san francisco yeah with the intention of deploying this thing at the Westfield mall in mm-hmm. the Bay area because the Westfield mall is anxious. They're desperate for experience. You know, I don't know like where he is in that process, but I went and saw it at gray area. It was absolutely fantastic. It mm-hmm. was a beautiful experience and he did an amazing job. Nocturne, right? Okay. So it was Nocturne. And then I think, all right, <laughs> this is like complete speculation, but I know that Meow Wolf came out with a Nocturne product shortly after he announced he was going to come out with his thing called Nocturne. Oh so like gosh. maybe they were like cramping his style. There might have been some kind of like, you know, experiential space turf war happening or whatever. But anyway, he had to change the name. And now it was uh, Numeri, Numeri, Numeri X or Numeri. I can't. I'm, I'm oh, totally, I think I've seen that. Yeah, yeah. I, I really hope he does not listen to this. <laughs> anyway, it was like some some shit went down, and he had to change the name, and it was another thing. Um, and it just finished, but uh, it was yeah, it was beautiful. Um, did you catch it? Did you get to see it? No, I didn't. But I've heard really great things from so many friends in the Bay Area about it. Yeah, it was well. It involved everybody, like literally, an entire section of my friend group, like a hundred people were working on this project at one point they were it was just like where are you going they're like oh we're going down to work on the thing it's like man everybody's working on this yeah yeah i i did not work i was like it it, it was a lot of work so I, and i was yeah. like super slammed at the time um but yeah i've been talking to shlomo about using the software that he developed because it really is next level like the 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 led pattern engine that he developed um it incorporates uh like sensory input you can do all kinds of uh generative content you can network multiple nodes to create like a massive uh distributed pattern engine mm-hmm. it's it's some next level next That's level LED. yeah absolutely absolutely how do we get on that tangent i don't even remember <laughs> i think we're talking about uh Retail storefronts, commercial space being available. Right, right, right. So, what what are some installations that you've done in the retail environment? Um, so, when I was in New York, we actually did a lot of work with um, Cartier, um, and we did a lot of work with them on creating these kind of VIP experiences that they could use because for the exact same reason that 
people come, you know, people don't come to a Cartier store because they need a watch, right? Like, yeah. They come to yeah. Cartier because they they like the brand, they're in love with the brand, they want to be a part of the history and everything that it stands for. And in New York, they have a mansion, the the Cartier Mansion on Fifth Avenue, that's been there since you know God knows when. The original mansion that the Cartier family bought when Central Park was still just a swamp. Right, right. That's some history. That's some history right there. Yeah. It's also it's a status thing, you know. There's like a it's like it's like Cadillac, Rolex, you know. There, there's a there's a there's a, a there's a vene- there's there's some there's like a social status that goes along with those products and that kind of lends itself to experience absolutely you know like shopping is it's like the experience of like expressing your social capital Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think that's very much at that level right because it's not about about the utilitarian purposes of of the object it's not because you need sunglasses or you need a watch like you're getting it because it's it's much more about in some way virtue signaling right about like what you believe in what you stand for like what club you want to affiliate yourself with yeah yeah but that's part of what i find so interesting about you know luxury retail in particular is because you're not selling objects you're not selling products you're selling identity to people and it's really interesting to think about how you can use and leverage space and use immersive environments and use interactive technology to create these feelings because that's really what people are buying, right? They're not, they're not buying the shoes. They're not buying the bag. They're buying the feeling of having been in the space and kind of being indoctrinated into this club or this group. Right. So, so what were you, so give me an example of an installation that you would do for Cartier or like, yeah. How did that, how did that like manifest? Yeah, so let me think. I think a um, there's two really good projects that, that I like that we did prototypes for them for. Um, a lot of our work focused on user research, so it was really about building prototypes for them and testing things with their you know VIPs and kind of seeing what stuck is a good idea for a project. Yeah. Um, one project we did was taking transparent um, LCD screens on kind of a a hinge arm that you could bring over a jewelry case and kind of as an augmented reality screen, it can show you information about the pieces that were in the case. So and- I saw, I saw a piece that you did. I thought it was for Samsung or something, but dude, those LCDs are ridiculous. Like what are those? It's like a piece yeah, of glass. Uh, it, what those is are, that? Those are OLED screens. Yeah. Those are organic LEDs that are grown on a sheet of glass. I have never seen OLED in that form. That's crazy. Yeah, it's just like transparent. No. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a different project we did for the um, the Olympic Village at the Korean Olympics. And that one was based off of, uh, that was more of a kind of a traditional marketing installation where the idea was really kind of showcasing the night side of the new Samsung Galaxy phones. But we yeah. tried to make it interesting by kind of instead of layering content like you do on Snapchat or whatever it is where you kind of have like, the glasses that go on, you have the background, but it's still a 2D image. We kind yeah. of wanted to extrude that 2D image in the 3D space. Sure. So we had four or five transparent screens stacked in front of each other. And you'd take like a little boomerang video of yourself and you'd be living on the second or third layer 
and you'd have these layers of screens that would have the different backdrops and it it kind of created this cool 2.5d you know experience where you could see the picture in multiple layers yeah man but, postcards in space that's that's classic i love it yeah so do you remember like back in projection days when people you would project through scrim yeah. layers of scrim and it was a similar it was a similar effect it was different you know it was like the same image but similar like creating depth through flat layers yeah that's actually a technique that we used to prototype the samsung project that we were doing we actually looked at using short throw projectors and multiple layers of scrim and kind of just getting the throw and the angle just right so they didn't project onto each other and using multiple yeah. layers of scrim to get the 2.5d effect but that's man, super OLEDs cool. are just like those transparent screens are just like so much more contrast than you can get projecting on the scrim it's nuts yeah, well, of course, of course. And it's also, you can put a different image on each one. So who is making, like, how do you get, is there a manufacturer that you were using or is like custom or how are you getting OLED screens in those form factors? So that was a commercial product that Samsung made at the time. Um, oh, it, was a, it was a business digital signage product that they'd made. Um, funny story about this is that we were doing this project for Samsung. When we had originally pitched the project, we said, Samsung makes these screens, we're going to use the Samsung screens, and it's a great like tie-in where the installation is really about the phone, but even the display technology is a Samsung technology that you guys manufacture and use. Yeah, right? yeah. And the way that some of these projects go, it takes you know six months to get approved, and you're talking about it and waiting and seeing what's going to happen. Well, forever, man. Projects like that, they take so long. Exactly. So they approved the project and they said, all right, we want to do this. And we did like a month of like getting our, you know, plan together. And we tried to buy these screens and Samsung had stopped manufacturing these screens. Oh no. They're like, oh, sorry, that, that, that went defunct. <laughs> yeah. So we, we then had to go and find like, well, like what, like, how do we get these screens? How do we try to make something like this happen? And we asked Samsung, and of course, Samsung's just so big and vast of a company. It's like the left hand can't even find the right hand, much less talk sure. to it. Um, so we actually managed to find a guy in Los Angeles who had specialized in repairing these screens. And he uh -huh. had enough spare parts that he offered to build us five screens that we needed for the Olympics. Interesting. And we, I'm sure we paid him like triple what the like list price was for each of them. But they were or like whatever. literally the last five screens in the world of that kind. It it's not your money. Yeah, man. It's like when there's a when there's a desire for an effect. So it's it's funny because we're actually we are bidding on a project with OLED screens and like I didn't put it together in my mind. I'm like, oh right, that is what I was seeing on your on your portfolio page. But now I'm wondering like They've spec these screens. Where the where the hell are we gonna get them? <laughs> like, do you know? Is there like a is now are there people manufacturing these things? It's... You know, these things change so frequently just based off of trends, especially in the business world. I feel like like a huge part of of the work that I've done has just been kind of staying abreast of what the trends are, what people are trying, what people are experimenting with, and then just jumping on it when you have a moment when it's like, oh, this technology would be great for this project. Like, let's do it while they're still making it. I mean, what do you think so the podcast is all about? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, so much, there's so much of these like weird technologies that are made at a professional level where you're not, you don't have to DIY it. 
because I mean, you know, as well as I do, like DIYing, like a, a professional project is like, oh, yeah, like yeah. it sucks. Like you want to support line to call. You want a product that's made, that it works, that like. Well, I mean, like true. a lot of what we do is DIY, but it's DIY down to a certain level. Like we're not, yeah, I mean, you are every project that most new media arts projects are DIY in some form if they're, mm-hmm. if they're any good. You know what I mean? Otherwise, it's like you're just looking at a product. However, most, I mean, you have to base it on a product at some point. You're not manufacturing yeah. everything. Yeah. I mean, I think that especially for our work, that's a little more like architectural, like scale and has, if you're, you're expecting a long lifetime for a project, it's not going to be up for 30 days. It's going to be up for five to 10 years, maybe longer. Yeah. Right. It's like, there's definitely a desire for things that are proven in some way. Yep. So there's always a, there's always a trade-off that you're thinking of like, well, how established is this technology? If I have to replace this thing in five years, am I going to be able to replace it? Like, you know, what's the, what's yeah. the plan for this? And there's definitely times where, you know, I got a crazy idea and I found out that like Toshiba was making this crazy new sensor that I wanted to play with. And I like made my own PCB, programmed my own firmware, got really nuts and like, you know, really wanted this effect. And it's just what, it was just a disproportionate amount of time that I spent on like something that maybe wasn't the biggest or most important part of the project. That's like, that's a really, this is an interesting point to, to touch on because I feel like most projects that we get hired on, we get hired because we can do custom PCBs and we can do custom firmware. And we just like, if, if you're a client and you get a custom thingy from us, like it's never, it's never so experimental that it's like, it could crash at any moment. It's not, it's not like that. It's like custom arrangements of LEDs and drivers. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, it's proven technology. It's just arranged in a different way. Yeah. And then if you, if you buy it, you're going to buy 25% extra because that's your five years. Yeah. There's, exactly. there's your five years in that pile right there in that box. Like exactly. when it fails, you replace it and that, that'll last you until it doesn't. And then if there's a desire, then we'll print more. Exactly. Like I specifically for my work, I tend to think of, the creative technology as almost the the creative systems architecture of the project of how yeah. to take lots of different off-the-shelf parts that are professionally manufactured but how can i connect them in new and interesting ways and sometimes yeah. part of that process like part of the digital architecture is a pcb or some custom firmware or a you know my custom microcontroller board that makes one thing talk to another thing but usually the the kind of key products aren't really you know, custom in that way. Like the uh, the Cadillac project is a really great example of this. Like the Cadillac oh, project is a sculpture, right? It's a ring. It has about 225 rear view mirrors on it. And there are these rear view mirrors that Cadillac actually uses in their car. That There's a little toggle switch that turns the rear view camera on and then goes back to a regular, regular mirror. So you can kind of get right, right. different views. Yeah. So they they gave us this and they said this is really cool display technology. It has a you know HD screen built into it in this weird form factor that's like super wide, right? Right, right. What can you guys do with it? And of course, like 
the first question when you get any kind of technology is like, okay, well, how the hell do I talk to it? Like, how do I, like, how do I get an image on or off of this thing? Right. So that's like the custom integration and the custom systems architecture part. That's like, okay, going to make a microcontroller board. We're going to get the right connectors, the right things, like figure out how to upload and download images. But like the display technology itself was like a manufactured thing. Sure. Manufactured object. Yeah. 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 And, and, Right, exactly. We're not like making we're not making custom LED diodes. Yeah, we are making custom arrangements with LED diodes. We're driving them in interesting ways with custom custom hardware and custom firmware. Um, yeah, no, I I think that we're on the same page. I think that we're talking about the same thing. Like, don't reinvent the wheel because the wheel is delicate and it it's pretty yeah. fucking fiddly. <laughs> but do something interesting well, with well the said. wheel. The wheel is delicate indeed. Yeah, exactly. But do make an interesting car with it, and and that's uh, yeah. I mean that that thing you made with the mirrors, man. That's that was beautiful, and uh, it was it was cool because it was interactive. Like people could come up with it. Describe how that works. So it was like a ring of car mirrors that mm-hmm. that almost looked like a, like a wedding ring, but giant. And the wedding ring was made yeah, of like, like twelve feet million, Yeah, it was like made of a million car mirrors that were actually. <laughs> LCDs, which is the car mirror that Cadillac uses in their their Cadillac or whatever. Um, there's a lot of potential for that. You know, you can take that. It's just a little screen. You can do whatever you want with it. You made a big ring and made it interactive. Yeah. So I mean, that was the, you know, I think again, this is kind of the theme in in creative technology work, in my opinion, is the thought of the design of the the thought process of like, well, what do you do that's interesting with like yeah it's a screen but like there's tons of ways you can get screens and tons of different form factors and shapes um for that project i think that we we kind of went down this route of really just trying to think through this is a part of a car it's a part of you know it's it's this display technology like what is it what does it mean what do people feel when they touch a rear view mirror on a car right so we started getting these ideas of you know, you adjust the mirror to get a different view, right? You want to see a little bit to the right, a little bit to the left. So we put a gyroscope on it, a accelerometer on it, so that you could adjust the image that you see. And the other part of it was that this project um, premiered at Marfa Film Festival in Marfa, Texas, way right. out in the middle of the desert. Right. Um, which really tied into this idea of, like, road trips, right? Of go To being in a car, like, what places can a car take you? right? Like, what are the places that you'll go, the things that you'll see? So inside of the ring, we created a three-dimensional model of Marfa, Texas that went through day and night cycles that processed, like, I think about every 15, 20 minutes. And then we just made each of these mirrors a little, almost like a periscope, like a little view into the 3D world that lived inside of the negative space of the ring. Yeah. so it's it was augmented reality in like a very literal sense, but you know it was an augmented reality sculpture because there was almost this hidden world inside of the ring that you could only see through the rear view mirrors, and when you would adjust them and move them, you get a slightly different view and you could see the the desert landscape, you could see the herds of bison, you can see the railroad going through the tracks down through the city, like we built all these kind of little miniatures that that moved around and kind of interacted in the environment so was that all that was all like vfx that was all like like animation or or cgi that you 
it was created uh, a it virtual was environment. Yeah, it was a 3D. It was essentially an animated 3D model that we placed inside of there. Right, and then the mirrors were windows into that. Yeah, so it was actually it's a pretty interesting project in that unlike most screen walls where you have one computer that you're outputting into lots of displays, we did it in a completely distributed way. So it was actually 225 different computers inside of it that were driving each of the screens. So each one so each screen had computer. its own computer. Each one, and then each, each computer had a slice of the model that was adjusted based on the tilt of the mirror. Exactly. Exactly. And could you so, keep it? Could you keep them coordinated that way? Did it like make sense if you stepped back and looked at it? Yeah. So we did. So there were 225 Raspberry Pis, a Raspberry Pi controlling each screen, mm. and then there was one master Raspberry Pi that was just the clock, like it was just the world clock, and all it did was broadcast over UDP. This is the time. These are the events. It's time for the like railroad to start. And then it would tell all 225 to like start the railroad animation. Like start so wait a minute. Were you running a 3D model on each Raspi? Yeah. And you were rendering a 3D model in a Raspi? Yeah. Interesting. I had like, dude, those things are fucking crazy. Oh, those yeah. Those things are it, so it, amazing. Absolutely insane. What, what was the environment that you were doing that in? Uh, what 3D environment can you run on a Raspi? In, on, in, in Cinder, in Cinder and uh, just OpenGL. So, I mean, the models were originally built in, um, in Unity and kind of building out the set. And then it was exported and then imported into Cinder and just kind of run. And Cinder runs on Linux. Yeah. Yeah, it's a C++ framework, like open frameworks they're processing, and it runs on Linux. Wow. It has a specific branch specifically for Raspberry Pis, which is really clutch for creative coding projects like this. That is crazy, man. That's such a cool way to do that project. Very, very, very interesting. Very nicely done. Awesome. Thanks. I wish I could see it. Is it still running? No, unfortunately not. It's It's one of those, as a lot of marketing projects go, it's one of them that has kind of a short life cycle. Yeah. So it toured and kind of, there was a couple of different uh, activations that it, that it came out for. And now I think it actually lives at uh, Gentex Corporation's headquarters. So Gentex is the technology manufacturer that actually makes the, the um, glass for Cadillac. So they make the rear view mirrors. Right, right. Yeah, in, your, in the video that described the project, it seemed like you guys had partnered with the mirror manufacturer who was Gentech and Yeah, exactly. They were a huge part of just, you know, being able to give us all the the information that isn't usually made public. You know, when yeah. you buy when you buy a car and it has a camera in it or whatever, they don't give you the data sheet for all the stuff in the car. So No, of course not. So Gentex was great at just giving us all the information we needed to be able to to make it happen. Very cool, man. That's very cool. So in that project, did you, did you like scale up your team or was it just you, your wife and. Well, that was a project that we did at midnight commercial, but that was like right. four people that were probably doing most of the work on that. So it was not a big team. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So what are you working on now? Well, we just finished a project at the Tate Modern. I think I yeah, that's right. Yeah, take a look at it. Or... 
I did. It, it's really cool. Tell me, tell me about that. Like I, I looked at it and I like saw it, but I don't think I understand really what it's all about. It was, it was much more abstract to me anyway than the the Cadillac installation. Yeah, it's definitely one of the more abstract projects that we've worked on. So, the Tate Modern does a big arts commission every year, the Tandai Commission, and the idea is that it's supposed to be a large arts commission for an emerging fine artist that gets to make a commission for the Turbine Hall, which is this giant space of the Tate Modern. So the Tate Modern used to be a power generation station on the the Thames River in London. And the power station was converted to a museum, but the Turbine Hall is still just the room where all of the equipment used to live. Mm. And it's huge. It's like 450 feet long, like over a hundred feet tall, like 75 feet wide. Like it's like five or six stories tall. And it's just this absolutely cavernous space. So you can do really interesting and ambitious work with, you know, a space that big. Yeah. So I was working, um, my company, Sadara Systems, we were working with Annika Yi, who is the artist that was selected for this commission. And she's been doing a lot of work recently um, exploring the idea of artificial intelligence and our relationships with it. So kind of her, the central thesis that we came up with for this project was that we wanted to kind of decenter how we think of humans and artificial intelligence, because the way that we think about artificial intelligence is really just based off of a lot of the, the seminal like 1950s science fiction where we always think of them as like androids, as like being shaped like humans, as possible as replacing humans and having human-like intelligence, right? Right, right. Like, yeah, this is where the like Elon Musk, like AI is going to destroy the world comes from. It's like, we think about, well, what would I do if I was an AI, <laughs> right? right. Like, like if we created another human, what would happen? So as a part of this project, we wanted to kind of, ask people to think about like, what are other kinds of intelligence? Like what are other things that might seem intelligent that don't seem like humans? So we created a, a fleet of autonomous life forms, really, of, of robots that have their own artificial intelligence built into them. They have their own, their own perception, their own motivation, their own behaviors, and they do all of it fully autonomously. And they just lived in the turbine hall for three months. Interesting. Interesting. So like, what are some of the, give me an example of some of the forms of AI that you created, like some of the forms of robot. Yeah. So the, the, there's two species of robot that live in the hall, right? They're both actually, um, they're based off of loosely off of jellyfish. I was going to say, an octopus better be in there. <laughs> yeah, jellyfish, actually, because jellyfish have a really interesting um, life cycle, right, where they used to think that there's two forms of jellyfish. There's the polyp, which is this little kind of organism, kind of like a coral, and then there's the medusa, which is the thing with the, the tentacles that everyone thinks of, right? Right. And they used to think that the polyps were just the, the babies, and they grew up into a tentacle of jellyfish. And they found out recently, fairly recently, that this isn't actually the case and that they actually just have two completely parallel adult forms. And depending on the environment and how much food is available, the water temperature, like dozens of different things, 
a jellyfish might grow up into a tentacle or it might grow up into a pineapple. That's so weird, man. And you know, it's funny because jellyfish, jellyfish are basically aliens and are they even like, they're so far from what I would consider an intelligence, you know? Yeah. They're, they're almost like they're, they're alive, but they're like, kind of like just floating through life you know oh, they're not I, doing much i've spent two years reading every behavioral science paper i can find on jellyfish and i can tell you they are way more interesting and complex than i think anyone's ever expected like are they like how, they, how are they, yeah tell me give me any give me like a fun fact about the fucking <laughs> about a jellyfish i mean besides having two forms they just have so much intentional behavior yeah right like they actually can navigate the environment and they come into different levels of the water, like different heights and depths of water, depending on the time of day. Yeah. They actually can form group behaviors where groups of jellyfish will do circles around each other. Oh, interesting. Just like almost like a flock or a schooling behavior. Yeah. Right? yeah. They can detect chemical receptors and pheromones in the water and navigate based off of those. Like yeah. they can even like smell prey and like move. So they do navigate. They 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 are uh, like intentional with their like mobility. Yeah, it's just, and in ways that I think a lot of people don't think of. Like I think I definitely thought of jellyfish as like oh they're just kind of like blobs of nerves with tentacles and they just move around and you know they don't have intention. Kind of they just respond. They respond to stimuli. <laughs> Right. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of what they seem like. They're just like floating around. Sometimes they get stuck in the engine of your boat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, we so we created kind of two different behavioral models for them, um, for these robots that look like jellyfish and the the tentacled ones. They're called xeno jellies. They are really interested in humans. And the way that we like to think of it is that they're xenophiles. So they like things that are different from themselves. And as yeah. kind of machines that fly, like I think you've seen it, these things actually fly. Uh, yeah, well, the ones in the ones that you created in the tape. At the tape, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, helium, I didn't helium know they flew. Through. I thought they were just like suspended, right? They're suspended? No, they, 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 they're fully autonomous dirigibles that fly through the space. Wow, so they're ah, interesting. That's how you you gave them flight is through through, yeah, like yeah, they're helium balloons. So they're they're balloons that are essentially filled, than filled with helium. They're neutral buoyancy. So the only time they spend energy is when they move. If the motors aren't running, they just hover in place. And if yeah. you want it to move, you just nut turn the motors on enough to nudge it. Yeah, it's, uh, this company called AirStage in Germany makes them. They're just those guys are aviation geniuses. Like they, they have so you so didn't make fun. you you found a product that does that. <laughs> we found we found artisans that make these beautiful art objects. Yeah, 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 yeah. So our role was that we did we did a lot of the conceptual design, and then we built the actual artificial intelligence that kind of runs all these things, like the the central brain for them. Yeah. That must have been a cool process. So you've got the you've got the jellyfish that that are attracted to to other the humans. Got, yep. Yeah, yeah. What else you got? And then there's another species called the planulae, and they look kind of like blobular. Yeah. And the idea for them is that they're more they're more similar to like fungus or plants or things like that that kind of 
straddle the uncomfortable line of like, are they alive? Are they not alive? Like, right. Where do they fall? And they actually, they um, respond to a virtual model of their environment. So the way that we really wanted to think of it was we were thinking of kind of colonial organisms, organisms that have groups like ants and bees, and they uh, communicate through their environment by like leaving markers, right? Like ants leave pheromones, bees will do like little dances and communicate to other bees where to go. And we wanted so to kind of like a distributed life form. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, and we couldn't modify the physical environment because this is a museum with people going in it. And we couldn't like, you know, have them spray paint and tag the walls of the museum or spray smells on the walls or right. anything like that, right? We do it light. We could, but that requires more weight and that makes the aerodynamics more complicated pretty quickly. And battery life is actually a huge concern with these things. I'm sure, yeah. Um, so we actually gave them a virtual environment and they leave pheromone track. They essentially leave digital pheromones in the space. And then mm -hmm. in the simulation, the pheromones create networks that are kind of like mycelial networks, like uh, fungus or mushrooms. And then the organisms follow the, the networks to navigate the space. So how did you visualize that to the audience? You know, if I was in the Tate, would I be able to perceive that digital, those digital trails, or was that all so kind that, of behind? That's really, I think, one of the key interesting parts of the project is that you have to create enough. You want to create enough intelligence that things look intentional, right? Like they can't be like a Roomba that just like goes and bumps into the wall and turns around and like right, yeah, again, right, like. But what feels intelligent or what feels intentional is a really like qualitative thing, right? Sure. It's, it's a really like gut feeling of a thing. Um, and to some extent, like you can't give people all the answers. Like a part of the enjoyment that people get is by positing and wondering and guessing like what's happening with this thing. So there's actually no, so there's no visualization that you can see. We actually have a couple of prints and uh, there's a catalog that the Tate Modern made that actually is like the behind the scenes, like how it works. And we have some, we have some visualizations of the network there. But if you're just a visitor in the, in the Tate Modern in the Turbine Hall, you don't know exactly what it is, but almost everyone who watches the Planule feels that there's like an intention to them. Yeah, like it, it's yeah. crazy. Like you can talk to them. And people like five out of five people that we talked to were just like, oh yeah, like they're definitely like they're in a group, they're all moving in this direction, they're following like something, like they're trying to do something. Like people gave them all sorts of of these kind of narratives of like what they were trying to accomplish or why. And, and I think they, that's, they, that's they, part they, of how you encourage people to like open up their idea of like intelligence and like what you know how artificial life or artificial intelligence might come to be well it's interesting i mean that's how like you know people who study life on earth that's how they, they had to like tease out how different animals mm -hmm. you know animal behavior but um so did they look different did the the jellyfish and the the, the planuli whatever you call them planuli, do they look yeah. Like, yeah do they look like different different yeah. things yeah they have yeah. very different visible behaviors but they both they're both flying they're they all flying. Everything, everything was flying everything, around. Everything was flying. Oh, dude, that's so cool, man! What a cool project, and it must have been so fun to to create that 
create those behavioral models. Yeah, it was really, it was just really fun and really interesting just from all these different perspectives, right? Of like the natural science research and digging deep into like, what are realistic behaviors for these things that people might, that people might recognize, right? Because you have to give people enough, just enough familiarity for them to kind of suspend disbelief. Because if it's all like, if it's too weird and too alien, people are just like this thing, like fucking crazy robots. What the hell is this? Well, I think that's, that's a good point for most interactive art you have to you can't be so abstract where people don't it doesn't click you have to give some some thread for people to hold on to like oh okay like i kind of see what's going on here otherwise it's just noise exactly you know and and you and you kind of have to you have to tailor your interactivity and your behaviors in such a way that it's intriguing so there is some some this need to figure it out right yeah but you can't make it so abstract that people don't get it in like 15 20 minutes exactly <laughs> i mean even shorter than that right like yeah, 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 people totally. that, like if they don't get it in 10 15 seconds if there's if there's not something that they can grab onto they just shrug and they're like i don't know like maybe this art's too smart for me i just don't get right. it and this is how we get the ice cream museum oh man i want to go visit dude i can't yeah i'm not gonna be in uh the the uk right it's in the uk in london yeah we're we're currently trying to figure out where it might go next ah so you you might tour it that's the hope i mean it's a you know it's a big project that i think was two years in the making and you know, once you have the whole platform and you have the AI written, you have the, the machines made, like you want to find a home for them and you want to, you want to get them out there in the world as much as you can. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm just trying, you know, we're, we're actually doing a project in a massive cavernous space right now. It's, it's a ginormous volumetric lighting installation. So mm-hmm. like, a, like, yeah, volumetrics. Um, I'm pretty sure, well, I mean, maybe there's an installation opportunity there. Mm-hmm. It, it's a huge cruise ship terminal down in Miami and oh, it's just exactly. like a massive space. And it's like, maybe <laughs> we'll, we'll like, we'll get our deposit first and then <laughs> we'll bring it up and we'll see if they, see if they bite. Yeah. I mean, so big spaces is actually one of the the biggest kind of requirements because these machines are huge too i don't know if you could tell from the photos but they're like they're like 10 feet tall and like six feet diameter like they're they're whoa seriously yeah wow yeah i didn't did not get that sense from the pictures i didn't i didn't think they were that big yeah it has to do with the avionics because the the helium balloons kind of have this property of you know, the the volume is like what? Like the, the length cubed, right? So you need to get them really big for the have enough lift to be able right. to support the weight. And if you make them a certain weight, if they get if you make them a certain size and they're so small, you can't have enough helium for the minimum amount of electronics that you need. So there's, sure, there's yeah. kind of idea that they, they don't scale linearly if you make them smaller or bigger. There's kind of an optimal size in the middle. Yeah. You know, we're doing, uh, we're doing work with, um, 
with drones these days. We're working with like drone swarms mm-hmm. and we're doing a Burning Man project with Mamumani. I don't know if you know, mm-hmm. he, he did the, the temple in um, 2018, 2019, mm-hmm. 2019. Um, but I'm really stoked, man, to play with, so I'm really into volumetric mapping. So like yeah. mapping pixels in space and there is no cooler medium than drones because they're pixels it's a it's a swarm of pixels that's moving in space yeah tracking those doing like drone uh excuse me doing like flocking algorithms with those Mm -hmm. and then mapping content onto that it's just like the future well it's the future uh, did you see the drift drone show at uh renegade burning man yeah that's who's doing the drones for the, the project they're actually doing the drones we're just working on content the studio drift guys yeah awesome are you gonna be there are you gonna be at burning man this year uh you know i live in nevada and i'm a hell of a lot closer than i've been for the past 10 years so maybe how did you end up in vegas i mean honestly that's the last place i would have thought that you would have you would have ended up (laughs) just because Uh, like i know you from boston and then it's like boston then san francisco and then yeah, well, oh, New York, and then yeah, I'm a Los Angelino originally. I'm Los Angeles at heart. I didn't know that. Yeah, so I, I grew up in Los Angeles. I moved to Boston for MIT, and you know, after two or three winters, was like, what the hell is this? Like, I need to get back to the sun. And all right, it only takes it only takes a couple it only takes a couple of years. For you. Yeah, yeah. The first the first winter is magical. The second yeah. winter is fun. And then the first nor'easter, you're just like, I'm out. This this well, sucks. Like the first time you have to trudge through like disgusting brown slush on your way to somewhere you need to be. <laughs> like, why am I doing this? Uh, like, for what? me, it was the the first time I had to shovel my sidewalk, and the 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 shove the snowbanks were taller than me. And oh, I'm, yeah. I'm six foot two, so I'm a pretty tall guy. And like, yeah, yeah. When the snowbanks are getting that tall, I was just like, "This is out of control." Like, I gotta, I gotta yeah. get out of here. I still was yeah. there for like twelve years longer or something. Like, you know, I think I was in Boston yeah. twelve years total, way longer That's than I long expected to. That's longer than I was in Boston, and I like basically grew. I grew up in Massachusetts, and then mm-hmm. yeah. So anyway, Los anyway, Angeles. I wanted, to move, I wanted to move back out west. I've been meaning to move back out west for a while. Um, but I was moving during the pandemic, and Los Angeles was just kind of the, the epicenter of the pandemic right around the time I was moving. And, and yeah. I was moving before before the vaccines were public. So, you know, if maybe I do things differently if I know what if I knew then what I know now about how quickly things would change. But at that yeah. point, it felt like there was really no light at the end of the tunnel. And Las Vegas seemed like a really great kind of medium of you know, I'm out west. I'm within, you know, a couple hours drive, hour flight of being able to go see my family if I need to go see them. And you just have so much access to the outdoors. I mean, Las Vegas Dude. is like three hours away from like five national parks or something ridiculous. The so I'm a climber and the 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 red rocks, man, we're out there like a couple times a year. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just in the past six months I was out there three times. Man, well, gotta come say hi next time i live right next to it i literally live i will (laughs) in the part of las vegas right next to red rock canyon 
Wow. So do you own a house? No, we're renting. Though we're looking about buying one. Do you have a guest room? We do. <laughs> okay, well, there you go. Be a guest. Yeah, man, absolutely. Now, we're out there frequently. We really are because uh, it's one of the best places to climb in the on the West Coast, like in, in the West, yeah. you know, the, the country. Um, and that's, you know, that level of access to the outdoors is really what I love. I mean, from my from my front door, I can ride my bike. I can ride a mountain bike less than 10 minutes and I'm in single track in the open desert. Wow. And it's that's amazing. like, it's like, you know, once a week I do like a five to 10 mile, like bike ride, like mountain bike, single track in the desert and just go out for a bike ride for like an hour and a half or whatever. And then so are you, are you into, are you into mountain biking? Yeah, well, that's a, I feel like it's a trick question. I'm into mountain biking and that I really like biking off of the road. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Not, I'm not really into the like extreme sports, like part of it, like, you know, getting a lot of air and like going through really crazy technical tracks. I mean, cause mountain biking scares the shit out of me. It's like when I'm climbing, I'm attached to a rope. On a mountain bike, you're attached to nothing. And so many of my friends have broken their collarbones. I'm just like, fuck that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not that, not that adventurous, but I'm also really comfortable on a bike. Like I was, I've literally been on bikes since before I could walk. Me too. But I have also almost eaten shit on a bike, <laughs> mountain bike, excuse me, mountain biking. Like I've, I've had close calls mountain biking and I, I just, I think I'm too reckless is what it comes down to. And I'm, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. I would, I, I know I would hurt myself if oh, I, if I, really you know, it, it goes well, like five times in a row and you're like, all right, this time we're going to go for it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> At least when you're climbing, you're attached to like your to friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, we should definitely <laughs> hang out, man. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll be in Vegas. I think. Yeah, we're talking to somebody about doing a project there, so I'll probably be in Vegas in the next couple months. That's great. And that was the other reason I, that Las Vegas was a move that felt like it made sense is, you know, I think, I think before the pandemic, more so, I felt that I had to be in New York or Los Angeles to kind of have the, the media market presence for the kinds of industries that, that I get work in. Yeah. Um, and Las Vegas is a huge entertainment, you know, center. It's a huge retail center. It's a huge, like, all sorts of these industries that really feel like they're going to start growing real fast. So yeah, absolutely. It's been really interesting to be here because there's just so much growth and activity happening. And, you know, even with... Uh, with the way that things are now, like all your meetings are on Zoom anyway, so it's not like I have to physically be in New York to get a job with a with an agent no. in New York or a store it, in New York. It, it doesn't matter. You know what's interesting about Vegas, though? Like I found, I think that New York, Boston, San Francisco, kind of, those are much more like heady markets. And what I mean by that is markets that are willing to to be more abstract and creative with their activations. Vegas is very like, I mean, you live there. It's just like mm -hmm. in your face, splash, like big, you know, you know what I mean? It's, I don't know. I actually, we haven't done almost anything in Vegas. We've done almost nothing in Vegas, man. We've done things 
all over the country and all, you know, in Europe and blah, blah, blah. And it, we've had no luck and it not in Vegas anyway. And I think it's because a, there's this, this group of entrenched companies that have a stranglehold on those large Vegas contracts. Mm-hmm. And most of those large Vegas contracts are essentially big media displays. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're like big light things or big video things or big combination things, but they're, they're splashy, bright things, you know? I mean, the challenge is really that, that Vegas to an extent that you couldn't do in a really dense city like San Francisco or New York, like Vegas is really focused on the scale of the spectacle. Oh yeah. And like New York and San Francisco just don't have the kind of space to like be thinking about but that scale of an experience for the most part. Yeah. And because because there are these institutions that kind of have big media monopolies on both space and media and real estate in Las Vegas, there's just kind of a whole nother scale of possibility. Yeah. Now, I don't know. I haven't seen the New York skyline in a minute. This is kind of embarrassing to say, but like, I know that, you know, San Francisco, I want to say it's like, you know, it's doing architectural placemaking and it's trying to be classy about it no matter what you think of the salesforce tower or like whatever you know it's like it's still there was some artistic intent there mm-hmm. do you know what i mean like the bay bridge i don't think anybody could argue that the bay bridge is not beautiful it is it's fucking beautiful yeah. it's classy it's it's shades of white it's algorithmic it's it's classy it defines the skyline you know mm-hmm. and like vegas is just like bleh. Yeah. Yeah, it's not <laughs> like that at all yeah, not absolutely. Like at all. I mean, there's yeah. almost no skyline to, to even speak of. It's kind of insane. Well, I mean, you go into there's definitely I mean, there's there, the there is a, there's there is, and that's it. Yeah. It is a it is a it is a spectacle that you see whenever you look in that direction and in that regard it is a skyline. That's true. Right? But there's no there's not a whole lot of like there's no there's, coordination. There's not a lot of like capital A architecture that you think of. Like there's no, no equivalent of like any of these iconic towers or or architectural yeah. monuments, right? Right. It is definitely like zombie apocalypse in the making. Like yeah. here we come. <laughs> as soon as that like, fucking river runs dry. You have in Vegas is like Luxor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That being said, I would love to do an installation there. I want to make a big bright thing. <laughs> <laughs> for vegas i mean why not anyway yeah i mean so i i think that for the like you are a you you your style is like it's smart man like i don't know how to describe it you have a very (laughs) smart aesthetic right and it's like i think that it might be lost on vegas do you know what i mean because like vegas is not Vegas is not a smart place. <laughs> it's just not. <laughs> I don't. I don't necessarily disagree with that. With that at all, I don't think people are looking for thoughtful entertainment in Las Vegas. No, but the thing is, it's a cheap place to live. It you are surrounded by essentially um, inexpensive sources of talent and uh, and and technology. And we live in a Zoom world now, man. Like you take your shit, you sell it to sell it to London, New York, Berlin, San Francisco, yeah, LA to a certain extent, you know. And like, yeah, I mean, that's that's the move. That's what we're trying to do. 
except we live in the most expensive place in the world. <laughs> We're like really doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean even just things like having space in Las Vegas is so much easier than it was in Brooklyn. Oh my god, dude. Like Sam, I ask myself like I feel trapped in a way. Like my team is here. I've collected my team here. Mm-hmm. And it's so expensive. It's so expensive. Everything's expensive. Labor is expensive. The place that we're in is expensive. Food is everything is expensive. I was like, well, why? Yeah, but I don't. Yeah, I don't like want to move. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like I like it here. I do. I like it in the Bay. But it's definitely a difficult place to live. It definitely, and you know, not to uh, to put too fine a point on it, but also like California is just a lot more expensive a state to run a business in than Las Vegas, than Nevada. Yeah, it it definitely is. It definitely is. Do you think you you, you think you're going to buy? I'm trying to buy property and it's really hard. Yeah. Yeah, my brother but is trying to buy a place in San Francisco or Los Angeles for like 6 months and it's just miserable. Yeah. It's nuts, man. It's totally nuts. Yeah, we're looking seriously at it. I mean, you know, Las Vegas is one of the the most rapidly growing cities in the country right now. It's like top 10. It's just absolutely just, insane, like how much they are just popping up houses everywhere here. I know. Does that mean that it's becoming more expensive? Definitely. It's rent has gone up thirty percent since last year. What? Do you have a lease, or is it just? Are you like no, not my rent. Like overall, like on average right. in the city, it's like going up like thirty percent year over year, which is just insane. Yeah, that is that is crazy. Yeah, that like I, you know, we got a relatively modest bump in rent. I think they want like a hundred dollars more a month from us. But I looked at, you know, what it costs on the on the market, and it's just insane. Like yeah, I'm renting yeah. a I'm renting a three bedroom house about two thousand square feet, which is huge coming from living in a six hundred square foot apartment in Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's like it was like two thousand dollars a month when I got here last year, and it's already oh, wow. like twenty six hundred dollars a month now. Yeah, yeah, just over one year, which just feels like like six hundred dollars a month in one year. Like that's crazy. Yeah. And how long have you been there for? Uh, just a little over a year now. Okay, so you've been there in a the summer. How are the summers? That's like really what it's like, man. That's it's. Yeah, Boston there, sucks in the winter, but Vegas must suck in the summer. Yeah, there's no way around it. It's it's hot as hell. Yeah. Um, it was last year. It was weird that June was the hot month instead of usually August is the hottest part of the year. Yeah. Last year, but June was like 117 for like two weeks straight every single day, and it was just oh like God. so miserable. Like you just yeah. You just leave the AC on twenty four seven. You stay inside, and you're just like, "Fuck it, we're not going outside." Like, right? Well, you can't. One hundred seventeen degrees. That's like oven. Te- that's like yeah. oven stuff. Yeah, that's really the that's the killer, right? Is like the breeze kicks up, and the breeze actually just makes you even hotter because it feels like a convection oven instead of a cool breeze. Yeah, man, absolutely. It's just absolutely. miserable. So yeah, I want to get out. Like Boston's like that too. Like, have like, there's at least three weeks out of the year where it's like four degrees in Boston. 
Oh no no no! I I, I fully understand. Yeah, it's like you got to go outside in like a spacesuit for for at least <laughs> a couple like a couple months of the year. You're just like in the spacesuit, <laughs> going yeah. to the going to the deli. You're like, okay, got to get my parka, got to get my boots, my gloves, my hat, yeah. my goggles. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's so, definitely but a- so you know, it's like I'm not gonna lie. It's not like it's like it doesn't get super hot here, but you know, as they say, at least it's a dry heat. <laughs> man it is one of the most beautiful cities that's the thing though it's a, you know people are like yeah they don't understand how close to the most amazing nature you are when you're in vegas oh, especially if you're into adventure sports like if you're into biking climbing hiking like you cannot beat it oh, even since in since i've moved here i've gotten really into amateur astronomy oh right? cool um in 45, <laughs> in, in 45 minutes, I can drive to Valley of Fire State Park, which is dark enough that I can see the Milky Way. Yeah. And like clearly, like you can clearly see the, Mar- the Milky Way. You can see the, the Great Rift, like the, the black gap that runs through the center of the Milky Way. Like right. 45 minutes from a city. Like, that's what I love about Las Vegas is like, I feel like I, like I have the advantages of living in a, in a more rural place where I can like, I can see the Milky Way. I can have national parks nearby. Like I can have the open desert, but it's like, you know, if I ever want like avocado toast and brunch cocktails, it's like 15 minutes away. Okay. So the last time I I still have like, like the city amenities, right? Like of like hipster cocktail bars and like brunch places and like fine dining and like entertainment yeah yeah and it's all like like world-class entertainment right well the the last time i went to vegas we actually we went for my friend's birthday and we stayed in quote-unquote the arts district and i don't know if you've been to this area but it's like all of these crazy weird thrift stores Mm -hmm. and it's actually really cool man there's all these cool cafes and there's like the thrift stores are some of them are like really old, like from the sixties and yeah. these are like very old people who run them and they're like classic thrift stores, but this area is full of them. Yeah. And it's the just Art all... is one of the oldest, like most OG parts of, of Las Vegas, like from the it's original. Really cool. It's really cool. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, I was, I was there and I'm like, huh, I could live here. Yeah. You're just like, huh, <laughs> Las Vegas is a lot cooler than I thought it was. Like, yeah, well, I mean, we, Vegas had things. I've I've known Vegas is cool because of Red Rocks for the past like mm-hmm. for the past four or five years. We just me and my friend group we go there every year. It's like a tradition. Yeah, every year we're in we're in Vegas at least a couple times a year for 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 Red Rocks for climbing. Um, I'm actually about to get a. Uh, <laughs> I'm really excited. I'm getting a Forerunner, and we're going on a road trip, and I want to come. Right. I want to go through. Uh, I want to go through Vegas, on my way to to Utah and then to to Colorado. All right. And uh, we should hang out. We should go. You should show me some. Uh, show me some astronomy. I would love to see it. Yeah. I'd love to see like if you have a telescope. I'd love to check it out and like. Yeah, I got a got an eight inch Dobsonian telescope. I can just throw it in the back seat of the car and go drive out. Honestly, I just go to Red Rock a lot because it's so close. It's like fifteen minute drive, and it's not it's not like Milky Way clear, but like you're not looking at the Milky Way with the telescope. You're looking at. Can you get in there at night? I thought it was closed at night. 
there's so the drive-throughs closed where you drive through the park mm. but there's a couple of pavilions that are like outside of the park where they just have parking and like covered like tables and stuff like that gotcha and you're still far enough the red rock canyon actually shields you from a lot of the light pollution from the city so even though you're only like 15 minutes out it's still like like three or four like levels darker yeah 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 totally that's the, that's the other reason i love that part is because you feel so separated but you are you can always see that goddamn luxor that yeah. stupid spotlight. <laughs> you know that there's a cloud of moths that like oh, circulate a mile up? Oh, God. I can only imagine. That's and because true. of that, there's a cloud of bats. So there's like a cloud of moths and a cloud of bats that's like a mile in, the, in up in the air above yeah. that fucking pyramid. <laughs> the bats. There's a lot of bats out here. Yeah. Where you got a lot of light and a lot of moths. <laughs> a lot of moths. <laughs> Talk about animal behaviors, man, right there. Yeah. yeah, I think it blew my mind the first summer night there. I was walk out walking and I thought it was like a bird flying weird. And I was like, oh, fuck, that's a bat. Like, shit, yeah. we have bats like in the city. Or like, yeah, they're, like it's kind of suburban, but, you know. They're very like recognizable. And then, then you've got coyotes, too. I mean, you had those in, in New York. Like, they're in San Francisco, too. They're everywhere. We coyotes have coyotes like, too. Really? Yeah. In the city? No way. Yeah. Well, I mean, I live in the edge of the city, right? I live, you know, 10 minutes into the city. They come in and they get they get lost in the city parks and stuff. And just like animal control has to come and they'll put out an alert. They're like, if you live in the, you know, Paseo's neighborhood, like you should stay inside for a little while. We're currently like tranquilizing a mountain lion and trying to bring it back out. Have you seen them? I've never seen a mountain lion. I haven't seen one in person, but I've definitely seen the reports on the news and they've been like five blocks away from where I live. Yeah. I want to see one at some point. That's like, I'm really, I love cats. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's almost one of those things where I'm like, I really want to see one like in the wild because it'd be awesome, but it might also be a really bad situation if I found one in the wild. Oh, a hundred percent. Right. It's like, yeah. that might be the last thing I see. It could be. <laughs> yeah, I'm a I'm I'm a huge like wildlife enthusiast. Like, there's a whole alternate reality. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a biologist and be like a a natural biologist, like a naturalist. Yeah. Somehow, you know, my alternate career of going to MIT and being a technologist happened instead. Um, yeah. But I still like you know I go on a bike ride in the desert and I'm like I hope I see a rattlesnake today. <laughs> I mean, if you're up on a bike, it's no big deal. If you're walking around, you're like, oh, shit, don't bite my leg, please. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I definitely like just even going out like scorpion hunting at night and like trying to see yeah. them, trying to find them. And we got those, a lot of those, too. I was going to say, those, those fuckers are everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, you see a lot of those. Oh, yeah. Any given night, there's like three to five in our backyard, like easily. So the ones at Red Rock, or uh, not Red Rock, uh, Valley of Fire insane they're like the size of like they're like the size of like a computer mouse i've actually never been out to valley of fire i would love to go yeah let's do it next time you're here let's go out bring a telescope look at some stars look at some rocks find some scorpions yeah <laughs> sounds like a plan absolutely man 
Listen, we've done an hour and 45. I think this is like a successful podcast. All right. <laughs> I'm glad you did this, man. This is fun. It's this good to catch fun. up and it's good to like get to know you better. Yeah, absolutely. It's great. Cool. Well, let's hang out soon. I'll be in touch. This will probably be edited in the next like two, three weeks. So I'll just, I'll shoot you a message when we get it edited yeah. and I'll let you review it before we, before we publish. Cool. I was going to ask, I was like, is this just like, do you just publish like an hour and 45 of us rambling or how much editing? Absolutely. A hundred percent. That is exactly what this is. Raw post, <laughs> uncut. Well, you know, we're, we're talking about new media arts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I love it. Anyway, man, I'm glad we got to talk, and yeah, uh, yeah I'll let you uh, I'll let you review before we publish. That sounds great, and yeah, let's just you know just stay in touch. It's always fun to hear about you know what's going on in each other's lives and uh, see how things are evolving and changing. Yeah, it is absolutely. All right, brother, we'll All talk right. to you soon. Take care. All right, bye.